What a fantastic description of exoplanets, such incredible imagination. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of March's book, Bewilderment by Richard Powers, published in 2021. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month, the 25th of March. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book. Or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that I've missed or there's something you agree with or really disagree with. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to page 147, the chapter that starts, Robbie even enjoyed inflating the boat. So Robin is a nine-year-old who is, quote, in trouble with the world. He's stargazing with his dad and it appears that his mum, Alyssa, is dead. Interestingly, Robin speaks in italics. Is he perhaps dumb, I'm thinking, or using sign language? Hopefully we'll find out shortly. Robin inquires whether there is anyone out there in the universe and the consequences of, quote, not hearing anything ever from the stars. Their father responds that it wouldn't mean anything definite. And I'm thinking, does that question allude to Robin's deafness? The fact that you can't hear something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or has meaning. They are staying in a log cabin in the Smoky Mountains. The father has taken him out of school for a week. Quote, We settled into our makeshift base camp. He seemed happy, which had been the whole point of this special trip. Lying down on beds spread out on the slats of the sagging deck, we said his mother's old secular prayer out loud together and fell asleep under our galaxy's 400 billion stars. There's a lovely reference there to the mother at the end. Very poignant. It transpires that Robin can hear. So I'm thinking, I wonder why the italics. The narrator, father, muses on what Robin's condition could be. Quote, watching medicine fail, my child, I developed a crackpot theory. Life is something we need to stop correcting. My boy was a pocket universe I could never hope to fathom. Every one of us is an experiment and we don't even know what the experiment is testing. My wife would have known how to talk to the doctors. Nobody's perfect, she liked to say, but man, we all fall short so beautifully. So Robbie is, quote, neurodivergent, which is the term that's used later on. His mother was crushed to death when Robbie was seven years old. They do some sightseeing. And interestingly, the father wants to, quote, stay one step ahead of his son by skimming the mammal's book before he wakes, which I think is an interesting thing for a father to want to do. And the mother is a constant presence in the evening with the recitation of her prayer. Robin wakes up from a terrible nightmare quote dad with all those places to live how come nobody's anywhere he says 
So obviously obsessing him quite a lot. Next day, it's his birthday, and we learn that his mum worked at the Capitol, quote, to do battle. Perhaps she was a lawyer of some kind. The narrator tells Robin the story of how he met his mother and got his name. Now, I'm thinking that Robin's voice without these speech marks and italics is very distracting. It's really taking me out of the story at the moment. What do you think about these italics? How are you affected by them? Are you not affected by them at all? I'm finding it slightly strange. The father shows him a planet called Devour, D-V-A-U, and explains why the conditions aren't quite right for life. And all through this first half, he starts showing him these imaginary planets. They go to a waterfall, and it reminds the narrator of his wife, Ali, His son clocks this and the father doesn't deny it. And as they come down at night, the father tells of how the mother used to quote the four immeasurables, which is a Buddhist mantra. Quote, I told him it came from Buddhism, the four immeasurables. There are four good things worth practicing, being kind toward every living thing, staying level and steady, feeling happy for any creature anywhere that is happy, and remembering that any suffering is also yours. We learn that the father's, quote, looks for life in outer space. He's an astrobiologist. Robin is still struggling with this Fermi's paradox. Now, Fermi's paradox is, quote, how, given all the universe's time and space, there seemed to be no one out there. He'd held on to the question since our first night in the cabin, looking through our telescope in the Milky Way. Where was everybody? Continuing on... The father says, quote, I lay in our tent that night thinking how Robbie had spent two days worrying over the silence of a galaxy that ought to be crawling with civilizations. As he's lying next to his son contemplating Fermi's paradox and not wishing the zoo hypothesis to be correct, he thinks of Ali. Now, the zoo hypothesis is the idea that we are all kind of in some kind of simulation or zoo. Quote, They created consoling playthings, countless sealed-off planets where life could evolve again in its pristine state, a bit like a terrarium. So we're just in a zoo. The father thinks of Ali again, quote, Ali, tell me what to do. We're fine together in the woods, but I'm afraid to take him home. They look at a rogue planet called Falasha, and it's teeming with life. Quote, we went to the bottom of Falasha's oceans into their volcanic seams. We aimed our headlamps into the deepest trenches and he gasped. Creatures everywhere, white crabs and clams, purple tube worms and living draperies, everything fed on the heat and chemistry oozing from hydrothermal vents. We learned that the world is going to pieces. There's war, there's cutting down of forests, there's terrorism. You can be put in jail for now criticising the president. They listened to a sci-fi novel called Flowers for Algernon on the way home. This is the father narrator speaking. Quote, I'd read it at age 11. It was one of the first books in my 2000 volume library of science fiction. I bought it in a used bookstore, a mass market paperback bearing a creepy image of a face halfway between mouse and man. Paying for it with my own money felt like cracking the code of adulthood. Holding it open in my hands, I wormholed into a different earth. Small, light, portable parallel universes turned out to be the only thing in this life I'd ever collect.
It's a nice little comment on books there. I must read this Flowers for Algernon, perhaps for a future podcast. The narrator father checks in on his uni department and we learn of Jingjing, his graduate student and colleague, Stryker, who he's not so keen on. And I'm thinking, will the Chinese-American tensions highlighted in the book so far cause any rift between he and Jingjing? I hope not. We learn the narrator is called Theo. And then we have Theo's backstory. We learn that he had a difficult family life and how he grew to love astrobiology. He meets Alyssa in a computer lab and they fall in love. Theo shows Robin videos of his mum, who is an animal rights lawyer. And it's a very moving chapter we have. Robin believes his mum may have turned into a salamander. And the father says, why a salamander? And Robbie replies with easy because she's fast and she loves the water. Because how, like you always say, she's totally her own species. Robbie gets angry at one of his mum's quotes about animal cruelty. Listen to this. 2% dad, he snarled like a cornered badger. Only 2% of all animals are wild. Everything else is factory cows and factory chickens and us. Theo describes another imaginary planet called Pelagos. Quote, dozens of dispersed intelligent species spoke millions of languages. Even the pigeons numbered in the hundreds. No town was bigger than a hamlet. Every few miles we came across a speaking thing whose shape and colour and form were wholly new. The most universally useful adaptation seemed to be humility. So he describes these planets as part of Robbie's bedtime routine. Quote, I was still dreaming up new layers to our creation when I realised I didn't need any more. I leaned in. Robin's breath came light and slow. The stream of his consciousness broadened to a miles-wide delta. I slipped off the bed and reached the doorway without a sound. But the click of the light switch jolted his body upright in the sudden dark. He screamed. I flipped the light back on. We forgot Mum's prayer and they're all dying. We said it together. May all sentient beings be free from needless suffering. But the boy who took the next two hours getting safe enough to fall back asleep was no longer sure if that prayer was doing much of anything. So he makes these simulated worlds for his day job. Quote, I made worlds by the thousands. I simulated their surfaces and cores and living atmospheres. I surveyed the ratios of telltale gases that might accumulate, depending on a planet's evolving inhabitants. I tweaked each simulation to match plausible metabolic scenarios, then incubated the parameters for hours on a supercomputer. Out popped Gaian melodies unfolding in time. The result was a catalogue of ecosystems and the biosignatures that would reveal them. When the spaceborne telescope that all my models waited for launched at last, we'd already have spectral fingertips on file to match to any imaginable perpetrator of the crime of life. Theo is giving a lecture when he gets a text to say his son has hurt another child. He's basically thumped him in the face. The, quote, over-professionalised head teacher wants to put Robin on psychoactive drugs, but Theo is very resistant to this. And then a big school fight happens. Quote, Jaden said they think that mum was, and then he goes on, they have a conversation, and there's a question about whether possibly suicide might have cropped up in her thoughts before she died. She was actually trying to manoeuvre out of the way of an animal that ran in front of her car. There is the possibility that Theo doesn't want to let 
Robin know that she was carrying his sister. I think perhaps Robin should have learnt the whole truth. Theo even says, quote, I've always been especially good at lying by omission. <laughs> and I wonder how he knows this and whether this omission, if it hasn't already backfired, will. The parents of Jaden are also, quote, weirdly sympathetic. Quote, I called the boy's parents, half expecting them to sue me over the phone. Instead, they were weirdly sympathetic. Their boy had given them more information than mine had given me, but they weren't volunteering anything. Everyone involved was protecting me. I couldn't tell from what. Robin takes on the project of painting American endangered species, then selling them at a farmer's market. That's an interesting idea. Theo lets Robin skip school, since Robbie says, quote, Mum says everything's dying, so what's the point? Poor Theo is really struggling as a parent, I think. He's making some bad decisions. He's lying to the office, saying that Robin has a doctor's appointment. Surely that will backfire. Robin wants to paint again the next day, and the dad says no, and the dad ends up physically assaulting Robbie. Quote, we fought. He tried to claw my face. I took his arm and twisted way too hard. Robin screamed and dropped, sobbing on the floor. I wanted to die. The back of his hand was half a crushed butterfly. Again, another bad choice. Theo imagines an exoplanet, Geminus, where he and his son are trapped on opposite sides of a terrible meridian. We go back in time and he and his wife do a science experiment for her friend, Martin Currier, who is a research scientist. Theo is put in a brain scanner and thinks certain emotions like grief and admiration. And then his wife, Ali, goes into the MFRI scanner as well, where they try to map vigilance and then ecstasy. Quote, I watched Ali's brain print of bliss on a screen in a booth alongside a man I was sure desired her. Curia stared at her unfolding pattern. She's perfect, he says. I had no idea what he was looking at, but even I could see how different this flood was from her patterns a few minutes before. I knew my wife as well as I've ever known anyone, but I had no clue what memories Ali used to generate this command performance. Was I somewhere in the mix? Was her son the centre of her joy? Or did other things prompt her innermost bliss? He goes on, speaking to Ali... What were you thinking of back there? I need to know. She ignored every sound from me but my pulse. When they get home, they make love. Courier obviously has a bit of a thing for Ali. After Ali's death, Theo returns to Courier's lab to ask for any non-invasive, quote, non-drug way of helping his son. And his reference to, quote, big farmer getting their cut shows that Theo, I think, is very anti-drugs not an atypical reaction in some people. His mention of, quote, would Ritalin have helped is met with an unscientific and derisive comment. And I'm thinking for a scientist, Theo seems quite unscientific in, in his attitude to psychoactive drugs. The way Currier is going to help Robbie, he does agree to, is by a process called DECNEF, decoded neural feedback. Currier says, quote, a high-performing trainee, someone who shows a knack with the feedback, can enjoy symptom amelioration for several weeks. Now, the Wikipedia article on DECNEF 
says the following. Decoded neurofeedback is the process of inducing knowledge in the subject by increasing neural activation in predetermined regions in the brain, such as the visual cortex. This is achieved by measuring neural activity in these regions via functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. Comparing this to the ideal pattern of neural activation in these regions for the intended purpose and giving subjects feedback on how close their current pattern of neural activity is to the ideal pattern. Without explicit knowledge of what they are supposed to be doing or thinking about, over time participants learn to induce this ideal pattern of neural activation. Corresponding to this, their, quote, knowledge or way of thinking has been found to change accordingly. It goes on, experiments conducted in 2011 at Boston University and ATR Computational Neuroscience Laboratories in Kyoto, Japan, demonstrated that volunteers were able to quickly solve complex visual puzzles they had not previously had exposure to. They did so by receiving the brain patterns of other volunteers who had already learned to solve the puzzles through trial and error methods. The research has far-reaching implications for treating patients with various learning disabilities, mental illness, memory problems and motor functionality impairments. The meeting ends with Currier agreeing to help Robin. Quote, I was entrusting my traumatised son to a careerist neuroscientist birder who still had a thing for my dead wife and decorated his office with cheesy posters quoting Thoreau. Robin goes into the MFRI scanner and learns to manipulate a dot and it makes him feel great. Quote, and this is Robbie speaking. They gave me music this time, Dad. It was totally crazy. I could raise and lower the notes and make them go faster and slower and change the clarinet to a violin just by wanting it. He carries on, and this is now Theo thinking. Quote, Robin and I walked from the neuroscience building to the lot where I was parked. He held my forearm, chattering. He hadn't grappled me so much in public since he was eight. Decoded neurofeedback was changing him, as surely as Ritalin would have. But then everything on earth was changing him. Every aggressive word from a friend over lunch, every click on his virtual farm, every species he painted each minute of every online clip, all the stories he read at night and all the ones I told him. There was no Robin, no one pilgrim in this procession of cells for him ever to remain the same as. The whole kaleidoscopic pageant of them, parading through time and space, was itself a work in progress. Robin tugged on my arm. Who do you think that guy is? And he replies with, what guy? The one whose brain I'm copying. It's not one guy, it's the average pattern of a few different people. Robbie goes on to say, quote, I feel like they're coming over to my house to hang out or something, like we're doing stuff together in my head. And then we go on to hear Theo trying to express how amazing the universe is to Robin. And I'm going to quote the whole chapter. Quote, the laws that govern the light from a firefly in my backyard, as I write these words tonight, also govern the light emitted from an exploding star one billion light years away. Place changes nothing, nor does time. One set of fixed rules runs the game in all times and places. That's as big a truth as we earthings have discovered or ever will in our brief run. But the place is big. I try to tell my son, you can't imagine how big. Think of the most unlikely place. And Robin says, pure diamond. And Theo says, they exist. And Robbie carries on with, a planet where the oceans are hundreds of miles deep? A planet with four suns? And Theo says, yes, times two. And we'll find even stranger places between here and the universe's edge. And Robbie says, okay, I'm thinking of my perfect planet, my one in a million place. And Theo says, at one in a million, there are roughly 10 million of them in the Milky Way alone. Wow. Kids at school give him a tale made of material. 
because he's, quote, an animal lover. And Dad reacts badly and he calls them jerk faces to his son. But Robin doesn't seem to mind. Theo says, quote, Our days seem to improve and not just because I looked for evidence. Theo then describes an Earth-like planet called Stasis. Quote, is there intelligence, my son asked. Is there anything aware? I told him no. Nothing on stasis needed to remember much or predict much further out than now. In such steadiness, there was no great call to adjust or improvise or second guess or model much of anything. He thought about that. Trouble is, what creates intelligence? I said, yes, crisis and change and upheaval. His voice turned sad and wondrous. Then we'll never find anyone smarter than us. Curious still obviously really likes Ali, quote, and this is him talking of Robin. He's a distinctive boy or he wouldn't be in the training in the first place. He picked up a Rubik's dodecahedron from his desk and toyed with it. His eyes turned absent and I knew who he was daydreaming about. He spoke more to himself than to me. Ali was the most incredible birder. I've never seen anyone so focused. She was pretty out there herself. Robin sees the activist Inga Alder on TV, who is a similar to Greta Thunberg nowadays, and is enamoured. He sells his pictures at the farmer's market, and he is actually very successful. He sends money to a charity and gets a not-too-helpful thank-you note, saying that 70% of the money will help endangered species. And this kind of upsets him. He expected all the money to be helped. He decides he needs to protest at the capital. So they go there... And Theo is reminded of Ali, who used to testify on bills. He remembers the last night he saw her. A man criticises Theo for his fathering skills. Remember there at the Capitol, trying to demonstrate. Quote, I'm the chief of staff of the Assembly Minority Leader and the father of four successful children. What are you teaching this boy, letting him stand out here by himself, holding this? You should be connecting him with existing groups. He could be helping to organise other kids, write letters, work on specific and useful projects. The president is alienating Asians with a visa crisis that impacts his own research student and Robin is getting worse and Currier even suggests to Theo that psychoactive drugs might help. But again, he is very resistant, the father. Currier suggests using Ali's ecstasy brain scan as a training tool template for Robin. I'm thinking, wow, this is getting far-fetched. So he goes into the MFRI scanner. Quote, I was pacing in the lab's foyer when he came from the first session. He trained for 90 minutes. Coloured dots, musical pictures and other feedback helped him to find and match the patterns of his mother's brain. And on the drive home, he says, quote, I turned on campus drive towards home, keeping my eyes on the road. Then in a voice I barely recognised, the alien on the front seat next to me said, your wife loves you. You know that, right? So Ali's kind of talking from beyond the grave. Very strange. And there's an answer to a question in Ali's brain scan that Theo is keen to have the answer to. And that brings us to halfway. Uh, there's some very interesting questions, I think, to rise from this book so far. Why those italics for Robin's voice? I find it so distracting. What do you think of them? And then what is the question that Theo is desperate to ask? Is it as mundane as, did she love Currier? We've already heard from Robin that, quote, your wife loves you. Or is it something like, did you commit suicide? He wants to know. Like perhaps Jaden's parents were suggesting. Another very important question. Will Robin get better? Will the 
MFRI scans continue to help him? And will his father avoid giving him psychoactive drugs? So all in all, I'm finding the book so far very bleak. I enjoyed the opening with some of the descriptions of the wild and the father and son relationship, but I'm finding it a little bit far-fetched, the idea that Robbie could even be speaking in his mother's voice with his mother's words. We've already heard from Robin that your wife loves you. Or did she want to commit suicide like Jaden's parents suggested? Or is the question, what memory caused her innermost bliss? Remember those questions that Theo had? Was I somewhere in the mix? Was her son the centre of her joy? Or did other things prompt her innermost bliss? I'd imagine it's probably Robin that caused her to have such bliss. I'd imagine we're going to find out. I'm hoping we're going to find out. So some very interesting ideas came out of this first half. The description of exoplanets is fantastic. I love them. This planet didn't have a name, but listen to this. Quote, I gave him a planet where the dominant sentient species could merge into a compound creature with all the powers of its separate parts. His slew of questions stopped the story. Are you for real? How could that even be? Theo says, it's another planet, that's how. And Robbie says, but I mean, are they still separate when they're together or all one single brain? Theo says, one single brain that can have their separate thoughts. Robbie says, you mean like telepathy? Theo says, more than telepathy, a super organism. Robbie says, can the big one, like, get inside the heads of the little ones? Does he need them all to make it work? What if some of the little ones don't want to join? Or are they really just parts to begin with? He worried the edge between friendly merger and hostile takeover. I tried to tilt his fascinated horror towards horrified fascination. They do it voluntarily, when times are hard and they need something extra to survive. And later, when things get better, they split up again. He leaned forward, suspicious. Wait a minute, like slime moulds? I'd shown him in the labs at the university those independent single cells that merged into a community with its own aggregate behaviour and rudimentary intelligence. You stole that from Earth! He slugged my upper arm several times in slow motion. That planet really reminds me of how our society, when working well, can work. <laughs> and these flights of imagination really seem to echo reality. For example, Geminus, quote, We travelled to Geminus together, my son and I, but we each arrived alone. I found myself in a wind-fed channel on the side of constant day. I searched throughout the habitable strip, but couldn't find him, he goes on. He had been looking for me as well, nearing the temperate boundary belt. I saw him a long way off, rushing from the other side. I broke into a run, but he held up his hands to stop me. I realised there, on the edge of darkness, he had seen the raw night sky. He'd looked at stars as no one on earth ever would again. He'd seen change and time, cycles and variety, math and stories as countless, subtle and various as the black-backed constellations. He called to me from over the standing edge of dark. Dad! Dad, you have no idea. But I was trapped in light and couldn't cross over. Now that planet is imagined after their physical fight. Very relevant. All the way through the book, we have the idea of animal having rights. And a big part of the novel is Ali being an animal rights lawyer. Robin is very much against eating animals. Quote, Grandpa Cliff says... Have a little turkey, man. It's Thanksgiving. When Robin finally blew, it was geothermal. He started screaming, I don't eat animals. I don't eat animals. Don't make me eat animals. There was an interesting idea about laziness and brain plasticity. Courier says, quote, 
Robin is a definitely a high-performing decoder, Courier agreed. The two of us sat in his office surrounded by toys, puzzles, optical illusions and life-affirming posters. Is that because he's so young, like how kids learn a new language without trying, says Theo. Marty Courier tipped his head to one side. Plasticity has been documented at every stage of life. Habit impedes us as we age as much as any change in innate capacity. These days we like to say that mature is just another name for lazy. Very interesting. What interesting ideas did you find in that very first part of the book? I would love to hear your thoughts. Do email me at bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, The Quiet American by Graham Greene. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. Hanneker wrote... An absolutely brilliant book. I think it is a genuine masterpiece to be enjoyed on numerous different levels. It goes straight to my favourites ever list. Graham Greene employs the right tone for this book, cynical yet compassionate. Correspondent Fowler's non-commitment is the best attitude for the place and time of his assignment in Vietnam. But whether it is psychologically healthy cannot be said with certainty. Written in 1955, it is shocking to see how very relevant the book still is today, perhaps even increasingly so. The ignorance and misconception of the stereotypical American proves to be truly deadly. In his ignorant fanaticism, CIA agent Pyle stays convinced of his good intentions, even when witnessing with his own eyes the devastation he brings about. I thought a few times that the saying, quote, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, was very applicable, and that is still applicable in the world today. A pity that this book was not a mandatory book to be read by the US military when sending the first troops to Vietnam halfway through the 1960s. Might have warned them for a hopeless endeavour. And Michael Fino Chiarino wrote, This is an amazing story about the French colonial war in Vietnam and an incompetent wannabe agent seen through the eyes of an opium-addicted British journalist. Cynicism abounds. Great writing, gripping scenes, excellent read, a true classic. He goes on to suggest that if you enjoyed the book and want to have more background on the historical canvas on which the story was painted, you should read Frederick Lugavol's Embers of War about the French-Indochina War and Francis Fitzgerald's masterful Fire in the Lake about the Vietnamese and the American conflict. Both, he says, are gripping stories. Swaroop drew out some favourite quotes that sum up the book. Quote, she was the hiss of steam, the clink of a cup. She was a certain hour of the night and the promise of rest. Swaroop goes on to say, Graham Greene's The Quiet American is a wonderful piece of literature. It's partly love story, partly war and courage story, partly suffering and sad story, partly a story of repent and partly a story filled with selfishness. Do read the below lines to get a feel of what this book is about and then read this book. Quote, death was the only absolute value in my world. Lose life and one would lose nothing again forever. Quote, we wouldn't all do better not trying to understand, accepting the fact that no human being will ever understand another, not a wife, a husband, a lover, a mistress, nor a parent, a child. Perhaps that's why men have invented God. Paul Bryant had a very different take on the quiet American. Quote, well, I pretty much hated the worldly, wary, opium-smoking, politically neutral, smug XXXX of a first-person, our man in Vietnam reporter, narrator who dolefully wraps his middle-aged melancholia around himself and sprinkles mournful aphorisms into the languid air like ditzy bumblebees dressed up as badass hornets. 
he goes on to say, when you're about to consign this saggy, not much of a plot novel to the two-star bin, then it moves up a gear and you get the strongly anti-colonious plot part. And this does go a long way towards justifying the love this novel gets. But I didn't enjoy my time in this guy's rancid mind. I didn't like his elliptical conversation with philosophical cops. His pearls of wisdom got old and by the time we find out, to no surprise, that his heart is in the right place, it's pretty much too late to care. And Dave Schaffsma said, quote, in the end, Fowler does take a stand, raging to pile about a needless and horrific bombing incident orchestrated by the Americans that causes many civilian casualties. But it's a novel, not a political tract. It's an often powerfully written book that helps see colonialism in a personal context. Fowler wants Fuong, Pyle wants her too. But what does she really want? Kind of reminded me, in that respect, of another great post-colonialist book by J.M. Curtsy, Waiting for the Barbarians, that sees colonialism and sexism as two aspects of the same condition. Anyway, if you would like to add your own thoughts, I would love to hear them. Please let me know at bookshook at yahoo.com. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments about any of the books that I've gone through, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got around to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of Bewilderment on the 25th of March, April's podcast will be all about For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway, which is around 500 pages. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of Wilderman on the 25th of March. See you then. Mm-hmm.